Welcome to One Chapel. We're a family of neighborhood churches in the Austin area. Our vision is to help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. It's a place to connect, grow, and serve the communities where we live. You can learn more about One Chapel and how to get involved at onechapel.com. And now, here's this week's message. Well, good morning, everybody. It's so good to see you here. If you want to get your Bibles out, please. We've been doing a series around here that we're calling How to Pray, A Simple Guide for All of Us Normal People. That's kind of the title here. And what we're doing is that we're looking at this issue of a prayer. And my hope and my prayer for all of us as we're doing this series is that this will be kind of a catalyst to renew and to reinvigorate and redefine your relationship with God and all different aspects of, of life. And, and so throughout the series, my goal is to try to kind of demystify this topic of prayer. Because I think for a lot of us, if you've grown up in the church, if you have any sort of idea of what Christianity is, prayer is just one of those things that we're supposed to do, right? It's just kind of a, you kind of make the assumption is that you just you just pray. It's the you should, you ought to. It's it's kind of the obligatory thing. But I think the reality is, for so many of us, we kind of get stuck with it. Uh, how do we actually do this? How uh, how is prayer really effective in our lives? And so, if you don't consider yourself a studied theologian, if you don't consider yourself a Jedi um, prayer warrior, then this series is for you. And I think this is going to be a wonderful discovery for all of us as we take this journey here together. Start here in Luke chapter eleven, verse one. It says, one day it happened that Jesus was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of the disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Now, I want you to think about this, because those first disciples, they were right there with Jesus, and they were watching how he was living his life, and they were actually hearing how he was praying. And so those first disciples, they were realizing that prayer was a huge part of how Jesus was able to do all that he was doing. In Mark chapter 1, it says that Jesus spent large amount of time in prayer early in the morning. In Luke chapter 5, it says that Jesus often spent hours in prayer in the wilderness. In Luke chapter 6, it says that Jesus spent an entire night in prayer prior to selecting of the disciples. In Luke chapter 22, It says that Jesus made a habit of it to pray on the Mount of Olives. And in Matthew chapter 22, it says that Jesus wrestled in prayer hour after hour in the Garden of Gethsemane, even though his disciples had fallen asleep and were getting tired and couldn't keep up with them. And so the disciples, they were experiencing it firsthand right with them while he was doing all this. And they were realizing there was something missing in their own lives. And so they were asking them this question, Lord, teach us how to pray. And his response is now what's become probably the world's most famous prayer. It's the Lord's Prayer. It's up here on the screen. Can we say this out loud again here this morning together? Say this with me. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine, next slide, here we go, you know it, I'll go ahead and do it by yourself, here we go. Oh, for, well, just the last line, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, making sure you know actually what it is. 
I think for so many of us, this prayer, I think a lot of times is, you have the kind of the assumption that we're supposed to pray these exact words, and so that's why it becomes liturgy. That's why if you've been to a lot of different churches, it's done kind of by row. There's this, almost this idea that we need to pray it word for word, but I think Jesus gave us this as actually a map for the very purpose to show us, to kind of guide us through how we're actually to pray. And so I've been saying this over the last several weeks that this Lord's Prayer, or this prayer map can be broken down into kind of this four-step rhythm using the acronym P-R-A-Y. Pause, rejoice, ask, and yield. Pause, rejoice, ask, yield. These really are the four sections when you break down the Lord's Prayer. Last week, we looked at the first section of what it means to pause. Today, I want to look at the second idea of what it means to rejoice. Philippians 4 Verse 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. That word rejoice in the original Greek language that this was written in is the word kairo, which means to find our joy, to delight in. And so the Amplified Bible defines this verse this way, rejoice in the Lord always, delight, take pleasure in him. Again, I will say it, rejoice. The message paraphrases it this way. Celebrate God all day, every day, I mean, revel in him. That's the aspect of what this section of rejoice is all about, to put our our delight, our joy then in him. Now, how many of you have ever seen the northern lights? Have any of you ever seen the northern lights in person before? Um, when we lived in Wisconsin, there were several times I went up to the northern part of Wisconsin, which you can see different parts of the northern lights, and it's this spectacular sight But I don't think anyone who's been there and seen the Northern Lights has ever thought, wow, I am so incredible. I don't think that's usually the response people have when they see the Northern Lights. It's kind of like going to the Grand Canyon. I mean, we've seen the Grand Canyon. When you're standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon, your brain can hardly comprehend the vastness of it. It's like it can't can't bring it in. And so I don't think anybody who's ever stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon has announced, wow, I am just so incredible. I don't think that's our response. I think we have this kind of built in. I think we're hardwired to wonder. When we're put into situations where we're confronted with things that are bigger than ourselves. I think there's just, there's just this automatic kind of unconscious uh, response of awe. That's kind of how we all res- we respond. And so I think this points to the reality that not only are we hardwired to wonder, but we're also hardwired to worship. And so this is where Jesus goes next in his prayer map for us. After pausing to be still, to recognize God's presence with us, then the most natural and the most appropriate response to God's presence is reverence. And so this is where he goes. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. David G. Banner writes, Prayer is more than you can ever imagine because God is so much beyond what you can conceive. And so this second section of rejoicing, so putting my delight, putting my pleasure in God, this section starts with recognizing God as our Father. Now, I think it's easy for us, when, especially if you know the Lord's Prayer, 
to kind of just kind of skim through this opening line of the Lord's prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's kind of, it's kind of a lot of times I think can, can just feel like a, a simple um, kind of pleasantry that we've got to hurry up and get through. It's kind of a, this heavenly handshake, if you will. It's kind of this knock on heaven's door. But we want to hurry and get through this so we can get to the point while we're in God's presence. We want to do the asking, right? We want to be able to get all that it is that we want. We want God to do what we want him to do. And so it's easy to just kind of skim through this very first part here and, and just kind of get on to the asking. But nothing could be further from the truth and the importance of actually this section of rejoicing because the way we view God affects everything about everything. Every other line in the Lord's prayer is preempted and primed by these opening words of adoration, our Father, which art in heaven. The problem, though, with this section is the word Father. Because I think for so many of us, especially here in America, so many of us have had these kind of distant and unloving experiences with Dad. And so we have a hard time really knowing what a loving Father actually is and and what that actually looks like in our lives. 50% of us suffer from the pain of divorce. 25% more of our families are horribly dysfunctional. And so so many of us, we have this father wound that we carry in our life, and then we project that onto how we view God. We don't really know what it is like to have a loving father in our life. And so that's why for me, after 29 years of being in the pastoral ministry, I've come to the conclusion that for most people, the biggest problem with prayer is God, (laughs) That's where we, a lot of us kind of trip over. The reason why we struggle with prayer is because we have a problem with God. Because we envision God as scowling. We envision God as perpetually disapproving. We envision God as invariably disappointed and needing to be placated and then persuaded in prayer. That's kind of how we view God. And so if that's how you view God, I really don't blame you for trying to avoid him. But Jesus gives us a completely different view of who God is. Look at this in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now look at this. 
Because Jesus makes it very clear to us that the God to whom we pray to is extravagantly kind. A father who actually comes running to us with arms flung wide open to us whenever we approach him, wherever we've been and whatever we've done, that's, that's how God responds to us. Jesus assures us that God, Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, the creator of the cosmos, the sustainer of the universe, is actually on our side. And it's from this relational position of being a son or being a daughter that we can then understand the second part of this first phrase, hallowed be thy name. The word hallowed is the Greek word hagiadzo, which means to make holy, to consecrate, to sanctify, to regard as special or sacred. And I said this earlier that after 29 years of pastoral ministry, I've come to the conclusion that for so many of us, one of the reasons why we struggle with prayer is that we doubt that God actually likes us. But as well, I think there's probably just as many of us who fail to fully grasp God's holiness. We have this notion of divine love devoid of divine sovereignty. And that's kind of how we approach God with with these kind of issues. And so when that happens, I think we very well, we struggle with prayer because we fail to grasp the the mind-blowing privilege that we have to actually be in the presence of the living God. And that familiarity actually then breeds apathy into our lives. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Annie Dillard she kind of describes the lunacy of this overfamiliarity, and she says it this way. She says, does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. So next week, life preservers for all, everybody. Isn't it interesting? I just, I just find this such an incredible dis, um, kind of a, a description of our casualness even in, uh, in our relationship with God. Now, we think of those first Christians, obviously, they didn't bring crash helmets into their worship, but they certainly understand, understood the sovereignty of, a, uh, of God in a way that I think that we don't or won't or can't. I mean, just open your Bible and start reading. When you start reading through the book of Acts, the incredible stories, when you, when you read the spontaneous and worshipful doxologies of the Apostle Paul, when you read the apocalyptic account of the Apostle John, all you have to do is open your Bible just a little bit, and all of a sudden, very quickly, you can come to the conclusion that their God, those first Christians' God, was frankly bigger than I think ours is. Look at this in James chapter 14. Starting in verse 13, it says, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, all such boasting is evil, inshallah. It's the Arabic word that means if God wills, inshallah. It's this acknowledgement that God's will and wisdom is at work in all things and at all times. Actually, it's a word that's still used in the Middle East by Christians and, and Jews alike, inshallah, if God wills. 
I think for so many of us, we've lost this sense of inshallah, if God wills. And I think we're quick to kind of get God all figured up and we've wrapped God up into our Bible verses and we know exactly how he's to behave and how he's supposed to be and we've performed these conclusions. There's, there's no mystery. There's only certainty in our Christianity and unintentionally, I think what happens is we create these kind of plastic bobblehead Jesus that we place on our, the, the dashboard of our cars and who bobs up and down to the, all the different types of music that we listen to. I think that's what we end up forming, and that's how Jesus becomes just in our life. C.S. Lewis said it this way, The longer I'm a Christian, and the closer I draw to God, the less discernible is his will. Isn't that Interesting. The longer I'm a Christian and the closer I draw to God, the less discernible is his will. I've been a Christian now, a follower of Jesus now for over 40 years, personally. And still, there are just so many things I don't understand. I don't understand why my dad hasn't been fully cured of diabetes and my sister hasn't been fully cured of MS. God knows that we've prayed. I don't understand why some people are healed of cancer and And some people aren't. It just seems so arbitrary. There's just so many things that I don't understand. But you know what? I'm learning that even though I don't fully understand, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay, everybody, to not be okay. Because you know what? Sometimes life hurts like hell. Life happens to us unexpectedly. And it can hurt like hell. But I've discovered that deleting God from the equation doesn't actually help. For those of you who are running from God in the midst of the hurt and the pain that you're experiencing, it doesn't actually help. Removing God just removes all meaning and morality from the mess of your life, and it removes all real hope for the future. And so you know what? I'm kind of stuck with God. Because even though I don't always understand, and even though... (laughs) To be honest, I don't always like him. It turns out he's all that I've got. And I think therein, maybe this is what hallowing is all about. Barbara Enreich, in her book, Living with a Wild God, a non-believer's search for the truth about everything. It's, a, it's an amazing book, by the way. But she writes, she writes this. She says, What's the point of a divinity that can fit on a thumb drive, a bumper sticker, or within a human skull? The God of the cosmos must surely be bigger than our capacity to understand. Where's the awe? Where's the wonder? The reverence of God. Because this is exactly actually what the Bible says. Isaiah 55 verse 9. God says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so here's the tension, the paradox, the complexity of God. Yes, he is your father and he loves you unconditionally and he will never ever give up on you. He'll be faithful to you even when you are not faithful to him. He is your father and he loves you beyond what you can ever think, hope, or imagine. Imagine that is who he is, but yet he is also to be hallowed. And so how do we step in to this next section of the Lord's Prayer? Because remember, the disciples are asking, how do we pray, God? How do we, how do we pray, Jesus? How is this supposed to work in our life? And Jesus shows us this first place of pausing to be still, to recognize God's presence actually 
is with you. But then this next step of rejoicing, to put my pleasure, to put my delight, my adoration, my worship, to point it towards God. How do I actually do that, especially when I don't feel it? And especially when life's not making sense. I want to give you, I think, five very practical ways to kind of stir your soul into this next section of our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Number one, worship God by awakening your soul. Worship God by awakening your soul. I don't know how it is with you, but if adoration, if worship, if this idea of rejoicing putting my hope, my desire, my joy in God. If that doesn't happen spontaneously, which sometimes it does, but there's a lot of times it just doesn't happen spontaneously when I approach God in prayer, then I need to take hold of my soul, and sometimes quite firmly, and make my soul wake up to remind my soul of just who God is. I love the way George MacDonald puts it. He's a Scottish um, writer. Um, he's a classic writer, and I love his material. He has a book called Diary of an Old Soul. And he says it this way. He said, We who would be born again indeed must wake our souls unnumbered times a day and urge ourselves to life with holy greed. I just think it's so true. We've got to get in the practice of Waking up our souls to remind ourselves just who God is. This is exactly what King David said in Psalms 103, starting in verse 1. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul. And forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. David was commanding his his own sluggish soul to wake up. He was reminding himself of the greatness of God and what God had been doing in his life. That's why worship is actually an act of your will. It's a choice. Instead of waiting to worship until I feel like it, which, by the way, could indeed be a long, long, long time for so many of us, instead of waiting until I feel it, I begin to look and to speak the evidences of God actually working in my life in the past. If I I can't see him today, if I couldn't see him yesterday, then I remind myself of his goodness in the past. I begin to remind myself of the things that he's done and be thankful and be grateful for those things. Often, I I don't know about you, but I have to kind of do it out loud. (laughs) I I have to kind of speak to myself to stir, to cause my soul to be awake and keep doing that until my feelings then line up with the facts. Now, obviously, sometimes that can seem a little bit fake at first. But you know, that's actually okay. And sometimes, occasionally, I may continue to feel sad and lethargic. And you know what? I think that's okay too. Because if I only said I love you to my wife, just the times that I was overwhelmed with passion or feeling, then honestly, I wouldn't be telling her enough how much I loved her. But I think the reality for every single one of us, our love, when I think about my wife, Courtney, my love for her may be more honest and less fake in the ordinariness of daily life than just in a hormonal surge of an emotional moment. And so that's why I think the writer of Hebrews, he urges us in Hebrews 13, verse 15, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, a fruit of lips that openly profess his name, a sacrifice of praise. What could be more sacrificial than praising God when we don't feel like it? 
What could be more sacrificial than that? I think it's kind of relatively easy to do this on a Sunday when you have somebody leading you, when you have Hayden and this amazing team up here who are singing and and playing. I, I think that can be actually kind of the easy way to do it. But what about Monday, tomorrow, that miserable Monday, that dreary, rainy day in your life before you have to go to work? I think this is why I think unemotional worship, the, the kind that maybe feels a little bit forced and a little bit fake, is actually precious to God precisely because it costs you something. Psalms 51 verse 16 says, going through the motions doesn't please you. A flawless performance is nothing to you. I learned God worship when my pride was shattered. Heart shattered lies ready for love. Don't for a moment escape God's notice. Here's number two. Worship God by praying a psalm. When you don't feel like it, when life's just not matching up and your emotions just aren't there, just start by reading a psalm out loud. Because I think one of the easiest ways for adoration to come into my prayer life is reading his psalms. It never ceases to amaze me that the book of Psalms is the very same prayer book that Jesus used and loved. Think about that. Many of the Psalms are 3,000 years old, written by King David himself. So why in the world wouldn't I want to use those, this kind of priceless resource and put that into my life? Because I don't know about you, I often find that my feelings and priorities are realigned when I read the Psalms because it gives me a different worldview and a completely different perspective. Look at this in Psalms chapter 73, one of my favorite Psalms, starting in verse 1. No doubt about it, God is good. Good to good people, good to good-hearted, but I nearly missed it, missed seeing his goodness. I was looking the other way, looking up to the people at the top, envying the wicked who have made it, who have nothing to worry about, not a care in the whole wide world. Pretentious with arrogance, they wear their latest fashions and violence, pampered and overfed, decked out in silk bows of silliness. They jeer using the words to kill. They bully their way with words. They're full of hot air, loud mouths disturbing the peace. People actually listen to them. Can you believe it? Like thirsty puppies, they lap up their words. What's going on here? Is God out to lunch? Nobody's tending the store. The wicked get by with everything. They haven't made piling up riches. I've been stupid to play by the rules. What has it gotten me? A long run of bad luck. That's what. A slap in the face every time I walk out the door. If I had given in and talked like this, I would have had a headache I would have betrayed your dear children. Still, when I tried to figure it out, all I got was a splitting headache until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I saw the whole picture, the slippery road you put them on, and then a final crash in a ditch of delusions, and a blink of an eye, disaster, a blind curve in the dark and a nightmare. We wake up and rub our eyes, nothing. There's nothing to them, and there never was. When I was beleaguered and bitter, totally consumed by envy, I was totally ignorant, a dumb ox in your very presence. I'm still in your presence, but you've taken my hand. You wisely and tenderly lead me, and then you bless me. You're all I want in heaven. You're all I want on earth. When my skin sags and my bones get brittle, God is rock firm and faithful. Look, those who have left you are falling apart. Deserters, they'll never be heard from again. But I'm in the very presence of God. Oh, how refreshing it is. I've made, Lord God, my home. God, I'm telling the world what you do. You see the shift? 
You see, what happened, this is what happens when we actually step into the presence of God. Perspective is changed. And so much of the Psalms is written this way where you see this change of perspective as we get our attention off ourselves and the people around us and actually put it on God. There's something about the Psalms that stirs our souls. Here's number three. Worship God with Bach, Beyonce, and Bethel. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. In other words, in addition to praying the Psalms, fill your day with music. Because here's the thing, melodies and harmonies are God-given gifts that stir your soul more powerfully than I think any other external stimulus. Pete Grieg, who is one of the founders of the 24-7 prayer movement that has now reached more than one half of the nations on planet Earth, he says it this way. He says, I'm slightly embarrassed to admit that in 24-7 prayer rooms, I'm partial to either techno, which is actually great for intercession, or harmonies by Giovanni Perlugia da Palestrina, whose music may have well been inspired by the polyphonic sounds of monks singing in tongues. While I'm hill walking, I often find myself turning to the grandeur of some of the great old hymns. One of the finest jazz records of all time, John Coltrane's A Love Supreme, is a journey into the mystery of God. Many of the greatest classical compositions in the world